Primal B. So I need to. <laughs> oh, <laughs> stop it. <laughs> no. <laughs> if, if you want my opinions on that, that's very simple. Um, I, growing up a National League enthusiast with a, being a Met fan, I love the idea of handling the bat. But these kids today don't do that anymore. They're not able to handle the bat. So I, I, the Universal DH was going to be the best thing for them. Absolutely. Ah, uh, look. Our pixel on a screen. <laughs> the animating principle is nowhere to be seen. Why am I lost in a loveless fantasy when somebody real is waiting out there for me? Are we frozen? <laughs> No, I was listening. I was about ready to fall asleep listening. I, know, so I, had, like my, this. I had my early bird <laughs> special. I wanted, uh, after I uh, uh, talked to them a little bit, I'm going to eat my banana pudding and my uh, peach cobbler back home in Georgia. And uh, that's going to be great for me. I know. What an <laughs> intro. What an intro. We got Curtis Lewa and Nelson Figueroa. We got Brooklyn boys in the house. One, one from Canarsie, one from Coney Island. Right, Figgy? Yes. Yes, indeed. How are you guys? Welcome. I'm good. Uh, I'm miserable. My city part <laughs> right. Can't go to a major league baseball game. Watching these guys get paid incredible amounts of ducats, and all they do is they they have slack problems. I'm wondering, oh, the slack. My <laughs> well, no, no, you'll you'll be able to go to a game ten percent. Uh, are they allowing ten percent of fans starting? So. You'll get there. No, he's coming with me. He's coming with me. He is my guest. Him and his family's my guest. He's coming to Yankee Stadium. I was his, uh, uh, he was my hero starting in 77. I was on the DL. I was down in uh, 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 at my house in Riverdale. And I'm listening to the the game, the, uh, the series. And he became a star. And I've watched him. I watched him become very, very successful. And he was my hero. And Nelson, I watched him uh, for a couple of years, and he had some really some pretty good years. And, uh, you know, people don't realize how tough it is for a D3 player to get noticed hmm. and also to get a chance to be up in the big leagues. Well, yeah. And I don't know how many uh, people really have actually have done that before. You know, it's not too many out of Brandeis, too. You know, I mean, I don't even know. Yeah, I know that. I I lived (laughs) in New York for almost 11 years of my life. And Brandeis is, where is that? That's in Brooklyn? No, Brandeis is actually in Waltham, Massachusetts. There's Brandeis High School, um, which is is over here in New York. Um, And it's funny because that was my same reaction when they started to recruit me. I was like, where exactly are you guys? Uh, I played in a baseball tournament up in Waltham, Massachusetts, and the pitching coach was watching us literally pitch in his backyard at one of the fields and um, was with youth service at the time, youth service league. And um, he came over, talked to me for a little bit, told me a little bit about the school and asked if I, you know, what my plans were. I thought I was going to try and go somewhere in the Big East, but it was going to be very difficult at my size to be able to pitch right away in the Big East. They kept saying, oh, when you bulk up a little bit, when you throw a little harder, you know, probably your junior year, you can join the rotation I don't want to sit around and wait for two years so I went with the best opportunity for me and at the time 
a small division three school like that, um, I was going to be able to pitch and play right away. And um, the coach, the head coach was a gentleman by the name of Pete Varney, who had been a major league catcher for several years. And sure, so with I the White Sox, like, right? Yes, sir. Yes. Yeah. So I felt like I, I could go somewhere and almost, it's almost like being tutored one-on-one in that kind of environment where I would be the big fish in a little pond. And that would be my way of standing out. So I tried to soak up as much, much knowledge, uh, learn as much as I could from Pete Varney. And by my sophomore year, I went over and played in the uh, Cape Cod League, which was, again, the, the most uh, prized prospects in the all best. the country. Yeah. And I was able to get in there because the pitching coach for the Wareham Gateman was a Division Three. Uh, coach in the area um, and so he saw me I pitched against his team uh, two different on two different occasions and did really well and he said yeah I know the kid can pitch he goes let me see what I can do I'll bring him in I'll hang out for a few days and if for some reason you know what happened was two kids got drafted and signed right away they had room then and I was able to jump in uh, in that rotation and I did very well made the all-star team we won a championship we threw back to back to back shutouts in the finals that had never been done before. And all of a sudden, my name was on the map. And uh, that led me to uh, bigger and better things, even though I still I still only got drafted in the 30th round and still had that mountain to climb. Um, but it gave me an opportunity at least to get my foot in the door professionally. I mean, I mean, come on now. There's 19,902 MLB players and you got and you made it. So give yourself some credit. Come on, Nelson. No, and it's amazing because I, I, was just, round. <laughs> I, I, I just I just did a clinic for youth service kids um, in Queens this weekend. And when I talked to them, I said, listen, I, I want you all to have major league success and have wonderful careers. I said, but it's not that easy. And let me explain to you how, how difficult it actually is. And one of the things is that even if you get drafted, only 5% of those that get drafted make it to the major leagues. And like you just said, that number right there, less than 20,000 people have actually played in one major league game. And That's, there's 750 and, players vying for a spot on a team each season. So, yeah, it's to, to even get drafted is <laughs> huge. You know, you got yeah, these kids nowadays – they, they spend thousands of dollars to get in lessons. And their parents will always tell you, well, my guy hit, my son hit just 15 home runs in four games. And my son just <laughs> struck out 30 guys in 11 oh, innings. Yeah. And oh, he's yeah. the best of the best. He stole, he, this guy, my son has the best arm. They don't understand. You know, mm -hmm. and you, you came up through the hard way through the minor leagues and you saw probably so many great athletes and yes. so many guys you said, gosh, am I here with these guys? And, mm -hmm. but it takes, but to make an athlete and Curtis would tell you this would take a, a, a person to go in your organization. You got to have heart. Mm -hmm. If you don't have heart, you know, that's a, that's 75% of the battle of heart, you know, 25% of course is, you know, ability, but I, I look at that 75%, somebody that really wants to really work. A guys that get drafted number one or two, number one, they make tons of money now. So they know they're going to get an opportunity to reach the big leagues. But if you right. get drafted in the 30th round, you know, it's just like football. You know, you, you, you get on the practice squad. You get beat up every single day. And they mm -hmm. don't understand that practice squad. If you look at the rotation, the practice squad, these guys on different teams like almost every week. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, it's not easy. And, it's you know, when we played, we made no money. 
Uh, Nelson Lease, uh, he came up at a time where, you know, they made a little bit of dollars. We made no money. You know, mm -hmm. in 73, I had 329. Now, they gave me a $500 raise. And then yeah. next year, I had 311. They took my $500 back. And then <laughs> next year, I had 301. They didn't even talk about a raise to me. And, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I look at these guys now, they're hitting 215, 217, and they're getting 40 at bat, and they're giving them a million and a half dollar raises. You know, and I'm looking at this. I'm saying to myself, look what free agency did. But you know what? Hey, I don't feel bad because we had the greatest time in the whole world. Exactly. When you put that Yankee uniform on, and Nelson would tell you, when you play in front of the New York fans, if the Met fans or Yankee fans, they're the greatest fans in the whole wide world. And they know everything what you do. If you don't do well, they're going to follow you home. And you know, yeah, absolutely. And one other thing before, like playing in New York with the fans and everything, you're, originally, you're from Brooklyn, you get drafted mm -hmm. by the Mets. What was that like? How was that phone call? Well, oh, that phone call was, it was fantastic because I had no offense to you because when you were drafted, the cameras weren't there. Right. As they are now. Oh, no. <laughs> so. and, and so, and plus, you had to, you know, actually, you actually dial the phone and maybe exactly. you still had rotary. It was still rotary. So you had to take the time exactly. getting the numbers. Uh, so when I first got, when I first got drafted, um, remember the first rounds went, went by, I had gotten a phone call from the Mets and they had said, you know, we're very interested in you, you know, what would it take to sign you? And I kept saying the same thing. Look, I'm not greedy. I'll take the average of whatever the round gets. The sooner, the better. And, you know, I, I really want to just start my professional career. Uh, first day goes by. They call me back late at night and said, hey, we went through the first 13 rounds. Um, looks like we're going to try and take you early tomorrow. That next day, I was waiting with bated breath, checking the phone, making sure the line was clear. And nothing happened. The third day came, and then when the third day came and went, and I got no phone call, no nothing, I'm like, all right, well, I'm going back to school. Let me just focus on doing the best I can, try and break some of the school records. Um, and after that junior year, I realized that that when I got the phone call finally, and this is how amazing the you know technology has changed things, I get the phone call finally. The gentleman's name was Paul Beretta. He was the scout. He actually got lost on the way to looking at another kid and stopped at my game looking around for a, a different field. While he saw me throwing, it was the 11th inning. I had struck out the side and he comes over and he asked the guy, well, you know, how hard is that kid throwing? He's like, 88, 89. He's a oh, pretty good arm. He's like, yeah, he goes, just struck out the side. And the kid says, yeah. He goes, uh, what inning is this? He goes, the 11th. He goes, is that your closer? He goes, no, actually that's still the starter. And his mouth dropped and he saw this kid who was 130 pounds, still throwing 88, 89 in the 11th inning. That's probably up to like 130, 140 pitches, but that's how I was raised. And right. uh, I wanted to go as deep in the game as long as I could. And he, he took note of, of us. We won that game, he gave me a scout card afterwards to fill out everything. Next thing I know, I'm a 30th round draft pick with the New York Mets. And it was very surreal because it, it, that's exactly what I wanted to do my whole life. I envisioned myself as a New York man. I grew up in Brooklyn playing against all my Yankee friends and I had to do the batting stances and try and, you know, emulate these guys. And that's how I learned how to switch it because I had to bat like Mookie and Doc. I mean, Mookie, Daryl, uh, Keith Hernandez. And I wasn't a lefty, so I had to learn how to hit lefty. And here I was. I finally get a chance to sign. I signed, um, at, I signed at Shea Stadium right on the GM's desk. Jerry Honeysucker was a desk at the time. I sign my contract. I sit down, watch the game. They put an announcement on the Jumbotron that Nelson Figueroa from Abraham Lincoln High School has signed and is now a Met. 
and I get a standing ovation. I go down to Florida the next day. And when I go in my locker and I go to put on my uniform, they have the names still etched inside the uh, collars. And I put on Howard Johnson's jersey and Dwight Gooden's pants. <laughs> I could have died right there. I could have died right there and I would have been just fine and, and happy. So to be drafted by a team that you always loved and idolized. I had a kid today, I was doing a clinic in, in Queens again. And um, he was asking me about, you know, oh, so you played in the major leagues? I'm like, yes. He goes, so uh, why'd you pick the Mets to play in the major leagues with? And I go, no, that's not how it works, kid. You don't get to just pick who you want to play in the major leagues with. I said, there's a draft. I said, there's a draft. And if you're good enough, you know, you get signed. And then if you become a free agent, then you can select what team you sign with. But at the major league level, you're going to put on any uniform you can if they're going to pay you to pitch for their team. So I uh, had to let them get a little dose of reality in that one that you'll just get to pick your team that you sign with. Right, exactly. And then you went to the Diamondbacks and you had a couple of detours and returned back to the Mets in 2008. Mm, yeah, that that was, again, 13 years in the making um, to, to be able to not only have my first taste of the big leagues, you know, I'm pitching against the Mets when I was with the Philadelphia Phillies in 2001. So my first taste of Shea Stadium was in a visiting team uniform. And I was greeted with warmth still. And I had 130 people there in the stands to watch me. So that helped. But then to actually get an opportunity to, to get back on track in my career, I had missed four years with, with a shoulder injury. Um, rehab, my shoulder pitched all over the world. The year before I get signed back with the Mets, I pitched 280 innings all over the world, including Mexico and Taiwan, just to continue to hone my craft and show that I could still get hitters out all over the world and baseball is still baseball. Finally, I get seen in the Dominican Republic and winter ball. And uh, I, I was able to get a contract and invite to spring training. And here I am putting on the Met uniform in a big league clubhouse. And I'm sitting next to Santana and sitting next to Pedro and sitting next to all these guys that I grew up idolizing. And it's like surreal. But here I, I was already a veteran. I was already moving on in my career. I was already almost 30 years old when that happens. And it was like, OK, now this is my time to shine. I'm back with the Mets for, for a reason. And I'll never forget that first game pitching in front of uh, the home crowd at Chase Stadium when I took over for Pedro when he got hurt in 2008. It was like a movie. Uh, it was a foggy night against the Milwaukee Brewers. The Brooklyn kid is stepping out on the mound. And I remember warming up and just taking it all in. Like just my body was going through the motions of the warmup, but my head was looking all over the stadium and just taking in every face and, and, and the roar of the crowd and feeling that energy. And I never forget that when I said, um, I said to myself, like, I'm on the field looking out now rather than on the outside looking in, like this is actually happening. And I got two strikes on one of my first hitters and the crowd started doing the slow clap. And I was like, oh my God, this is everything I used to watch Doc Gooden and Sid Fernandez and, and, and Darling. And I got to give him a strikeout. I got to give him a strikeout. And I didn't strike out the first guy I got on two strikes. I got on the ground out. And then the next guy struck out and the roar of the crowd for just one second, one second. I got to know what it was like to be like Doc Gooden on that Shea Stadium mound and get that applause and that feel that adulation and the, and the energy you get from the roar of the crowd. And it was, there was something that I'll not only never forget, I don't think I ever felt uh, anything like that in my life. It's gotta be what drugs are like because that, that high of, of that enthusiasm and to feel like 
I really accomplished it, even though I had already been in the big leagues. It, was, it didn't feel like it really hit me until I was in a Met uniform doing it at Shea Stadium. Now. Well, it's like it was it came full circle for you. I mean, absolutely. You travel different teams. You were in Taiwan. You were the, the series MVP in their championship. Mm -hmm. I mean, you did really well and really well internationally. So for you to come home, I mean, come on now. Probably still gives you chills talking about it, thinking about it. Oh, God, it. yes. It, it's it, it, Talking about how not easy it was, again, a cup of coffee would have been great. A cup just to get a chance to be in the big leagues would have been awesome to say, yeah, I made it to the big leagues. But to go up 11 different times, that to me showed perseverance. And, you know, we're going to be talking with Curtis later on. I, I know for myself, perseverance is what New York is all about. You know, I had that edge. I had that little chip on my shoulder. You know, I was a New Yorker and I used to always walk around with that. You know, some people say it was cockiness or, you know, I called it confidence and it became swagger, what they called it later. It was just confidence. It was, you're not going to overwhelm me with anything. Uh, I'm from New York. Uh, I'm as tough as they come and you can knock me down, but I'm going to get back up because that's what I was, that was, that I was born and raised that way. So between the, uh, the dedication and the hard work from my, instilled from my father, my father, and my mother, um, to the way I was raised with you service league with Mel Zitter, who was one of the toughest coaches in all of New York. And then I go over to, you know, Brandeis university and took the D three route, which doesn't happen every day. Okay. Normally you go D three. It's, it, it's a write-off. Eh, this guy's not going to be able to do it, but I was very fortunate to get opportunities and to make the most of them. Right. When you made your debut in 2000, you're the first Brandeis alum to make it to the major league level. So. Yeah, and the only still, which I, I, I hope there was a lot more of us because I hope that me just being at Brandeis, it also helped with recruiting because people saw that dream was possible. You didn't have to go the D1 route. Um, we played very competitive baseball in, in our neck of the woods up there in Massachusetts. We used to play against BC, okay. BU. If we played them in the fall, we would beat them, but they wouldn't put us on the schedule in the spring. No chance because they were Division One. They didn't want to get beat by Division Three school. Uh, Carlos Pena over at Northeastern, you know, he was, and Mike Glavin, Tom Glavin's brother with a, you know, dynamic duo over there, left-handed hitters who used to crush balls. We used to play against them in the gym with the tiny, all set up with an indoor mound and we had nets to protect the windows because they were hitting the ball so dang hard. But that that's, you know, that was my upbringing, you know, playing in the parade grounds. So I, I look at these kids now and I get a kid who's on a turf field complaining about, oh, I got a bad bounce. And I'm like, you have no idea what a bad bounce is until it hits either a hypodermic needle or half a bottle as it's rolling towards you in the parade grounds. In regards, kind of around that, speaking of the upbringing, being from New York, it's not easy. Let's bring in Curtis and, and yes, say sir. it was not easy. <laughs> Curtis Lewa, everyone, an activist, founder and CEO of the Guardian Angels. Welcome. Hello. Oh, my pleasure to be joining all of you. Uh, obviously, I'm enjoying uh, the memory machine that you've taken us on in terms of <laughs> A Brandeis University, I would have said, this guy's a brainiac. You know, he's like, <laughs> <laughs> you, got, you, got, you got a scholarship to Brown University, my friend. Yeah, but uh -huh. I, got, I got thrown out of high school. <laughs> look, look, Jesuits at oh, look what you're doing now. Doesn't matter. I their boots on my backside. And by the way, when I pitched, the only time my father ever saw me pitch, because he was a merchant seaman. We were playing against Lachlan High School in Brooklyn Prep Field. You talk about hypodermic needles, rocks, busted bottles. Five straight pitches. I was insisting that they couldn't hit my curveball. Five times I looked over my shoulder, went over the fence in President Street, broke a window in one of the brownstones, 
the coach took me out. He said, I didn't want to have to do this, kid. Your dad said, but, you know, come on. And it's like, we're like 22 to four. This is embarrassing. So I knew right then, that was it for me. I was the captain of the team, but ha, I was not ready for prime time. I knew it then. That's all right. That's all right. But you still brought stickball to Cuba back in 2004. So you still kept yeah. up. One of my proudest accomplishments uh, was playing stickball. I was a very good stickball player, commissioner of stickball in the city of New York, anointed by Rudy Giuliani when he was in Cucalamunga. Getting <laughs> <laughs> back from the brink. And yes, I was the first to bring stickball to Cuba. I was out in the uh, Palace of the Revolution, which is right near the ocean. And all I did was I had some Spaldings and some Daily News uh, stickball bats. And they just started to bounce the ball. And the kids started running in from everywhere. Took them about a half hour because their hand-eye coordination was good. I was putting spin on the ball. I was loading it up with a little spit. Within a <laughs> they were hitting everything I was throwing up there. To this day, there's probably some Cubanos who have swum 90 miles through shark-infested waters with a Spalding probably in their backpack. <laughs> well, they found them in the water as they were getting over Exactly, it helped, it helped them float in the Atlantic. They love, they love stickball, baseball. They would hit rocks, they would hit cans, they would hit socks. It was incredible to see all of those young people there who were just in love of this game that we were all raised on. Oh, that's incredible. I love it. Incredible. So let's talk about the Guardian Angels, okay? You were a, you were a nighttime manager of McDonald's in the Bronx. You're doing your commute. Um, on the four train, Mugglers Express, I believe is what was nicknamed. And you're just so distraught and just so sick and tired of the crimes uh, that plagued all your writers. So you came up with, um, I think it started off as Magnificent 13. How did it evolve to that, to what Guardian Angels is? Well, uh, I saw my future in the New York Daily News in the Sunday paper. They said, come on up to the Bronx. We need managers for Mickey D's. And I said, well, you know, hey, Ray Kroc, Mickey D's, Max Fry's Strawberry Shakes. I can do that. I was living in Brownsville. Never ran, never will at that time. Not too many white boys living in Brownsville, right? Mm. Talking 1976, 77. Feet don't fail me now. So I two-trained the beast from Rockaway Avenue, switch over to the four-train, the Mugger's Express, go up to Fordham and Webster Avenue. And the reason that I got hired, the guy said, look, I, I couldn't care if you if you were burning quarter pounders on the grill. We just had a manager shot and killed in a guard in an armed robbery. So you seem like you got some coulion, some uh, onions here. So basically, <laughs> all you are is the watchman here at Mickey D's. Make sure they don't take the money out each night. And that's how I got my start in Mickey D's. And from there, I said, you know, once we close at night, I have to schlep back to Brooklyn. All of a sudden, you got homeboys, you know, at that time, they had the Kangos, they had the reverse sheepskin uh, coats, they're coming through the train singing, Manhattan makes it, and then they'd be looking at me with my Mickey D's uh, jacket on, and Brooklyn takes it, and then all mm -hmm. start giving me a beat down like you wouldn't believe. So I'd have to be fighting, and I said, this is crazy. So I brainwashed my closing crew, most of who lived in the Bronx. And I said, guess what? Ray Kroc is going to pay for you to come patrol with me on the number four train, the Muggers Express, because I'm giving you extra time on the time clock. And that's how it began. 
And it started at the same time that the Warriors, remember the Warriors come out? Mm-hmm. That movie came out, it was a cult classic, but everybody thought that we were a gang because they said, oh, it's like the Warriors. So now <laughs> we're after us and they were everywhere. I mean, it was gang turf everywhere in the Bronx, Savage Skulls, Savage Nomads, Black Spades, I can go on forever. The cops were locking us up because they thought we were vigilantes in Hells Angels. So getting wooden shampoos and concrete facials on my way to Central Brooklyn, Bronx House, House of Detention, the tombs, Rikers Island. And here it is, I'm just trying to protect people. And all of a sudden the screw, the CEO would say, hey, look at who we have here today, Mr. Crime Fighter. Mm. You guys want him in your cell. So you can imagine that was a baptism in fire. So for 13 years, we had no support. Uh, the police were against us. Ed Koch, the mayor at that time, was opposed to us. Right. It wasn't until Rudy Giuliani got elected mayor that he said, stop, Abbas, no more. Leave the guardian angels alone. This is a good thing for the city. They're volunteers. They're unarmed. They put their lives at stake. Six had been shot and killed in the line of duty. Three dozen seriously injured. I got air raided with five hollow point bullets on the orders of John Gotti Sr., the junior to the Gambinos. So I think... Uh, Took us 13 years in that baptism of fire, but we earned our, our credibility and we've been able to become a glo- global organization. I mean, oh, absolutely. 130 cities, uh, 13 countries. I mean, recognized multiple times. And, and people just feel so safe when they see you. You see the red berets and your, your satin red jackets. I mean, it's incredible what you've done. And like you said, unarmed. Six of you travel, right? It's always minimum six. And you train uh, them. In minimum of four. Minimum, minimum of four now? Okay. And I will tell you in the initial stages, you know, dealing with black gangs, Hispanic gangs, Italian gangs, occasionally Asian gangs, the ones I had to watch out for were the Supreme Cougines because, you know, they use bats, but you could tell they never played hardball. (laughs) I got hit so hard one time, my mother felt the vibrations. I read the Joe DiMaggio autograph on the Louisville Slugger before it got me right in the forehead. <laughs> That's how they translated baseball, <clears throat> uh, street thuggery. You know, Italians were always known to have baseball bats in the back of the trunk of their car. And at a moment's notice, these Supreme Cougines would be pulling them out and going to war against us, the guardian angels. So it didn't matter what neighborhood we were in, wherever we were, the ethnic or the racial background, we were multiracial. We were out there trying to protect people everyone initially misunderstood what our motivations were. You know, they always thought the worst. And over time, we were able to prove that we were just trying to do what was best for everybody. Well, protect, protect the communities and the people. And then you train them on martial arts, because like you said, they're unarmed. You guys get patted down that there's no weapons on you guys, no drugs, and you train them in martial arts. And there's like different- um, Yeah, and uh, this isn't see something, say something. You got to call 911. You'd be waiting for the Sundays for the cops to get there. So if we see somebody brutalizing somebody else, that's a little pain compliance there. What do you think that, you think that guy just stands there, you know, all of a sudden he's just knocked you upside your head, tried to rob you. We're physically holding him until the police arrive, which again, uh, could take a month of Sundays. And so you got to use a little pain compliance so that the guy understands, stop resisting, pal. We're giving you a chiropractic adjustment that normally you might have to <laughs> appreciate how we rearrange 
all of the vertebrae in your backside while you're waiting for the wagon to come pick you up. You're doing a service. It's a full service. It is a full service. Yeah, it's an it's we call an attitudinal readjustment. There you go. Your attitude readjusted because unfortunately, when you run the streets like I've run the streets, the only language that some of the young men understand is pain compliance. That's because they weren't brought up the right way. They had no role models. You know, daddy's not around. And if there are any male role models, they're the worst possible male role models. So they grow up thinking that being a thug is the way to get attention and recognition. They look forward to going to jail as if it's a badge of courage. And mm. unfortunately for a lot of them, you know, I pass through neighborhoods now and all the hardball fields that we used to try to find on a Sunday. Remember, we used to have to go way in the back. You talk about the parade grounds. Remember, they had the new parade grounds and then they had the old cow pastures in the back. There mm -hmm. no dirt. There was like hills. The weeds and the weeds. Right. And then when you would try to dig in at home plate, like you would be up to your knee in one section <laughs> and up to your ankle in the next. And yet, you, if you found one field, you say, glory, hallelujah, hallelujah, there's nobody around. Now, to find somebody playing hardboard, other than, let's say, a Dominican neighborhood, it's almost, you, you almost never see that any longer. All they play is kickball, kickball, soccer, you know, football with a U, that fake pony for Gazy soccer that they've <laughs> Americans into playing instead of good old-fashioned smash-mouth American football. Right. When's the last time you saw a bunch of young people just get together and hit some fungos? You know, just go out there, hit shag some flies. Remember, I remember Frank Corsetti. He would have the fungal bat at Yankee Stadium. He'd be hitting the high flies to Mickey, Tommy Trash, Roger Maris. You'd say, and then they play pepper on the sidelines. Now they have big stuff. Yeah. No pepper. No pepper. Mm -hmm. What yeah. the hell is that? The pepper, the, all kinds of tricks, chicanery. Yeah, you know, it's like, it was so good to see. And then they eliminated all of that. They eliminated all of that, which was, and then a double header. As a kid, you go early in the morning. First, you'd have to naturally go and tell your mother, yeah, I had my holy community. Mm. <laughs> right? You'd go on the train, a buck 50 student organization card. You'd see batting practice, all the scrubs before game one. And then sometimes it'd be extra innings. And then more batting practice before game two. And you wouldn't get home sometimes till 10, 11 o'clock at night. No cell phones. They had no idea where you are. You could bring a brown bag lunch, a Velveeta cheese sandwich, right? Which was <laughs> worse. Drink water from a fountain to save what little money you had. And you had the best time in the world. Now you have to take a reverse mortgage to get a dirty water hot dog. <laughs> <laughs> right? Crazy. It's so true. You don't see any of this anymore. You don't see kids going to the stadium on their own. Man. We used to go as a posse of five, six, seven kids. Right. And it was great. It was absolutely doubleheaders, twinighters. Oh, it Those were the days. Those were the days. Oh, man. I can hear. Tell us more stories. <laughs> oh, more stories? Okay. How it my heart. My hero was Mickey Mantle, number seven. My father, Merchant Seaman, was a Chicago White Sox fan because he came from Chi-Town. So he goes, kid, we're going to go to Yankee Stadium. So naturally, we're up in the right field stands, the nosebleed section. And my father didn't drink because my grandfather was a lush, but he's screaming invectives from the right field foul pole 
And Mickey Mantle in center. Roger Maris is below. Roger Maris is looking up, number nine, and feeling sorry for me. He's going, you're a degenerate, Mickey Mantle. You're a lush. You drink all the time. Look at you. You had the knee operation. You got the ace bandage showing. And all the Yankee fans looked at me, kid, we feel so sorry for you. Maybe we can adopt you. This crazy guy here in, in, in the real Yankee stadium, you know, the land of Babe Ruth, not the, the, the mall that was built with Jeter and Aroid, you know, and all the rest of them. The house of Ruth, it was so great to be there. And my father, he destroyed my experience in Yankee Stadium. I was crushed. Everybody was looking at me like, oh, man, this guy, is, he's got all the furniture upstairs and rearranged in the wrong rooms. And my father walking around, oh, Chicago White Sox back then. Cuban manager, trying to remember his name. Louis Aparicio? No. No, it's that shortstop from Venezuela. Yeah. Floyd Robinson in right field, I remember. Trying to remember, they had uh, Minnie Minosa was like in the final stages of his yeah. power hitter. And the Chicago White Sox had great pitching, so they would keep the Yankees down to like 2-1, 3-2 games. And I mean, we're talking nine innings, ten innings, and then watching Tommy Agee as the Chicago White Sox basket catch. Remember the mm -hmm. basket catch, Willie sure. May basket catch, Joe Pepitone in center field, basket catch. When do you ever see anybody do a basket catch nowadays? No. Mm -mm. It's never. No, they catch the fly ball and they throw it in center field or right field and they run in. When we played, they, we couldn't do that because if we would have done that, they would have sent us down to the minor leagues. We didn't have enough baseballs. We couldn't finish the games. <laughs> okay. We couldn't finish the games. To watch Mickey Mantle drag bunt, drag Mickey Mantle who could hit him like 600 feet on a flyer, which you'd be waiting like you could run around, you know, Yankee Stadium four times. The ball was still in the air by the time he came down. He would drag bunt oh. since he was a switch hitter and he would beat it out to first base. And the best games were against the Detroit Tigers. Got Norm Cash at first base. Oh, it was amazing. Al Kaline, who had a rocket in right field. They had Frank Yarry, I think he was. He was the Yankee killer, left-hander. Yankees Frank Larry, yeah. Uh, uh, freehand. That's right, catcher. Those, yeah. And you went there for a buck 50. Yeah. A buck 50. Unbelievable. I know. How times have changed. It's oh, so gosh. I mean, You can go for a buck 50 now. It's just 150. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Minimum. Minimum. 150. And they would sign. Because you $300 for one person, get out of there. Right. But after the game, they would sign. So you're a kid, right? Whatever you had, you know, your dirty, your dirty underwear, they'd sign that. <laughs> Not anymore. The only one who wouldn't sign, Mickey Mantle. Oh, no. my heart. Willie Mays wouldn't sign. Joe DiMaggio wouldn't sign. These guys were the three best of all time, right? I don't know. They walked around with a cloud over their head. It's like they were gods. There was idolatry. We saw Mickey Mantle, Willie Mays. Hey, Bloomberg, I wouldn't have come to visit you. I'd have come to visit Willie Mays who lived up I know that. <laughs> Joe DiMaggio, Mr. Coffee, right? Remember Mr. Coffee, Joe And they always walk around like they had dog faces and doom and gloom, and I'm saying, God, these are the greatest baseball players of all time. Why do they always have this attitude like the world owed them? They were gods. I don't think people realized at that time. They walked and people would say, oh, my God, it's Mickey Mantle. 
It's Willie Mays. It's Joe DiMaggio. I never could quite understand that. And they would never sign. They would never sign. Hey, get out of here, kid. Hey, you're a person of no consequence. Out of my way. Oh, hey, Mickey, you're God. Uh, yeah, get out. We're throwing you out of heaven. You're going straight to hell. <laughs> <laughs> so it's funny that you say that because one of my biggest goals when I was in the big league, especially in New York, was I would go out for an hour before the game and I would sign autographs for anyone and everyone. And I would usually get, can you take this to David Wright? Can you take this to the Jose Reyes? <laughs> yeah, can you get, yeah, can you get Beltran to come over here? And here I am signing the autograph. And because I remember being that kid, I remember just wanting an autograph. And if that player signed for me, he became my favorite player. You know, I'd follow that guy's career for the rest of my life, you know? So that to me was something that I always remembered that I wanted to make that day. Cause if it was the only game that kid went to, I wanted to say he had a fantastic time. He got an autograph ball. He got an autograph. He got a picture, whatever it was. And I took an hour out of my day, always before the games. Afterwards, it's a little tough because the guys like Mickey Mantle wanted to get going on the rest of the night, if you know what I mean. So for me, it was to take that moment to give back. I, I, you know, I, I don't make a lot of money. It wasn't about how much money I was making at the time because I used to get that question all the time you know, when I talked to kids. You know, how much money do you make? What kind of car you drive? You know, how big's your house kind of thing? And to me, I, I got to put professional baseball player anytime I had to list my occupation. And you talk about that frowny face. I never had that because every day I was in the big leagues was a blessing for me. And I always wanted to make sure that I gave uh, the fans, uh, even if I was on the road and I got a chance to autograph. I used to get letters all the time from fans on the road who were like, you know, I'm a diehard Pittsburgh Pirate fan, but I will be rooting for you every time you play because you took the time out for my son. And that, that, that to me is the, the big difference in, in how if I was commissioner for a day, those are some of the things that I would try and make sure that, that there's better fan relations because for the price that you're paying and for the, price, the amount of money that you're making, just that half hour, have a half hour that you can give back and be able to make the fans happy. After the game, guys are tough now, especially with social media and you got cameras following you everywhere. They want to be out of the limelight. Once those lights go off at the stadium, you know, the, the, the further you can be from the back pages, the better when it comes to that stuff. So I think now if I was commissioner for a day, I would definitely try and get these guys a little bit more motivated to uh, do some better, better PR for the teams and for the game of baseball. And I'm so glad you said that just because you giving back and taking time to make these kids smile with autographs, pictures and whatnot. I know you had met a young girl by the name of Perry in 2009. And mm -hmm. John, you are not a runner, my friend. <laughs> you have a brand new hip. I know that. Mm -hmm. And because of Perry, a young girl who is battling an illness, um, you did work with High Lifetime, right? No, High, High Lifetime. Lifetime yeah. And yes. uh, you walked a half marathon for her in Miami. So tell us when you met her and how did that marathon uh, transpire? Seven, I think seven years later, years later. Yeah, we're still we're still doing it uh, with COVID last year. We weren't able to do it. And I've been recruiting other people to come run with me. Um, so Perry Finkelstein and the Finkelsteins are a fantastic family, huge Mets fans. I met them in 2009. They were sitting down and Perry Finkelstein was born with cerebral, pal uh, cerebral palsy. Um, and she's amazing that all she does is try and give back. All she does is try and raise money for other kids. High Lifeline. Uh, is an organization that raises money for a, a, a large group of kids who are under 
basically 24 hour 365 uh, medical care uh, and need, you know, it's a whole family that has to really help these kids thrive uh, and not just survive. So what High Lifeline does is they send these kids to a place called Camp Simha up in New York and they go for a week and basically the kid is given an experience of a lifetime. It's like they bring Disney World to them um, rather than them having to go down there because most families can't afford it with all the medical bills that they have. And they are taking care of all their expenses. All the care is being given by a medical staff and team so that the families can also get a little break there and enjoy the time with them where it's not in a, you know, let, let, what do we have to do to, to get them through the next few hours? So they have... Uh, helicopter rides where it's modified and the, the wheelchairs can go in, jet skis that are modified. And there's a zip line that goes for like two miles all around the complex where you have literally kids in wheelchairs zip lining through the, uh, through the forest in upstate New York. Um, they play all kinds of games, uh, huge soccer fields. There's a ba indoor basketball court that it's made to look like an arena where, you know, you have that, and they're all watching each other play. And so I, love to interact with them and uh, help them to raise money. Um, it's just been such a fun cause and going down to Miami and run the marathon and well, walk the marathon. I had a hip replacement and I remember telling my surgeon, can I run a half marathon? And he goes, are you getting paid to do it? And I go, no, I'm not yeah. getting paid to do it, but I'm trying to raise some money. He goes, do you care about your time? I said, no, he goes, then walk it. I said, well, I will. So it was, it was more rewarding for me to be able to walk it and kind of enjoy the walk. I, I did it with a couple of the slower runners talking the whole time. And, and once we got through the finish line, um, we were training to complete, not to compete. So we got through the finish line and to see everyone smile. Perry walked the last mile on under her own power with a gate trainer. And we were all around her cheering her on. So to see her Chris cross the finish line is just such, such an uplifting moment uh, in my life that it, it, it's, it's something that I tell everyone, that, you know, just to be there and be a fan of someone else's because yeah, I made it to the major leagues and I, I'm doing, you know, television with the Mets for years and I, I get looked at and, and like, you know, Curtis was saying, you know, some of us are gods, you know, it's, it's very rare that I get to turn around and look at someone and, and I'm jealous of them in a way of like that accomplishment, that moment of victory that they just had, I know what that feels like. And I want to do it again. And I don't think running is in my future for it to be a, oh, look, you won the marathon. So the, the idea that I was able to not only complete the task of, you know, raising money all year long and then completing the marathon and then celebrating afterwards with them and continuing to think about, okay, as soon as the day is over, Lori Finkelstein, who's the mom, soon as the race is over, we're sitting out by the, the pool in Miami and she says, okay, we got to start talking about next year's fundraising. And I'm like, oh my God, we just got done. But these, these, the Finkelsteins are relentless. They're, they're fantastic people. But that also started because when I went to give an autograph, uh, I remember Lori was like, who are you? And they were like, we're trying to give this to David Wright. She had made a bracelet, like a lanyard type bracelet. Perry had made it herself. So she wanted David Wright to have one. And so they gave me one. I took it into David Wright and I gave it to me, put it up in his locker. And I, I said, you know, I never really thought much would become of it. That was 2009. I'm doing SNY and I get an inbox message in my Facebook from Joel Finkelstein, her brother. And he sends me a video of her on YouTube where she did a thousand steps, where she just took a thousand steps in the Miami Marathon. And it was, again, overwhelming. It was where it was, okay, how do I get involved and, and what can I do? Because it, it's one thing to write a check 
it's, it's another right. thing to actually go through the experience and, and to help raise awareness and to see the look on these kids' faces and, and, and then to do things with them afterwards, you know, do bowling events where I can, you know, I bring all the kids out and try to do a bowling event where we also get a chance to raise money. We do raffles, we get a lot of things donated and then raffle them off. And um, these life experiences, uh, those are the kinds of things that are, are on my, you know, my bucket list is about life experiences, not necessarily about, you know, the, the monetary things. Those are nice, don't get me wrong, but a car is a car, a house is a house. When it comes to life experiences and my journey of going all over the place, uh, Curtis got a chance to go to Cuba to go play stickball with, with guys who are, are some of the best athletes in the world when it comes to baseball. And to be able to do that, I did that in Dominican Republic where you're driving down the, you know, you're driving down in the mountains and all of a sudden you see a group of kids playing with a mop handle and uh, one, you know, one blue ball, a racquetball. And they're out there playing nine on nine with no shoes on. You know, it's a, it's, it's a rock quarry out there. And then with no shoes on, some of them, but they're playing with this joy, this love of the game. And I see all these players come over and I always tell them, remember that joy that you played with. Don't, don't let the pressure of the money, don't let the pressure of the fans, don't let that interfere with the joy of the game. And I like the younger generation that's coming up, the Fernando Tatises of the world, um, where you can see that energy that they, they give off. That's why he's the, you know, the poster boy for the MLB game, the video game this year, because that's what you're looking at is I played with his dad with the Mets. And now I get to see junior who was just a little kid who used to, you know, we used to pitch him underhand just to see if he could hit the ball. Now this guy's crushing balls all over the place. So it's, it's one of those things that being able to give back is always one of my biggest priorities. Yeah, people don't realize as a, uh, people realistically, don't realize as an athlete, we are human. We love to give back. Uh, the greatest thing that I did was in New York was putting on the Yankee uniform and mm -hmm. standing out an old Yankee ballpark. And there used to be a lot of, it was Thurman and myself and Bobby Bonds and, and uh, 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 Jim Ray Hart and all those guys. We used to uh, go to a lot of uh, Shriners uh, a lot of telethons uh, when we used to play during the off season and to be able to give back to somebody. Uh, the, I think the greatest thing in the world is a lot of times I go down, I do a lot of stuff at the stadium <clears throat> and I'm watching batting practice and I get baseballs and mm. I get the balls that they hit for home runs. I'm picking up. I'm, I'm the only one in left field or right field where I want to be. I'm picking them up. If you see a kid, that has any type of Down syndrome in a wheelchair, you know, they don't know who you are. I mean, mm -hmm. they, I give them a baseball and I said, you know, enjoy yourself. And then, mm -hmm. you know, and then the, the helper would say, who are you? And you say, oh, I remember you like that. And, you know, mm -hmm. and you give the, uh, the, uh, a child a hug. The greatest thing in the whole world is to watch people smile. That's the greatest thing in the whole world. Yes, exactly. Yeah, just to provide, like, just, just even for those seconds, just to see them smile and forget something mm -hmm. for that second, just to see that and, and to provide these experiences. And speaking of which, I want to welcome Nelson Braff, who is uh, <laughs> one of the major benefactors of High Lifeline. Welcome, Nelson. How are you? Hi, Natalie. Hey, Ron. Hey, how Nelson. are you? How you doing, big guy? Good. How are you? 
So, uh, Nelson, I'm another Nelson from Coney Island, by the way. <laughs> wow, look at that. Who'd have thunk it? Right? Also Lincoln High School. And, oh, my um, heavens. So, first of all, on behalf of High Lifeline, thank you for everything. You're actually one of the people who come up in conversation every so often. Um, usually when they ask me who I know to bring around for the next summer. Uh, mm -hmm. Last summer, there was was a bit of a challenge actually. So one of the reasons I came on, he doesn't know it yet, but next summer we're gonna be taking Ron to Camp Simcha. I'm ready. Nice. <laughs> he just didn't know about it until- No, 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 second. I know about, I don't know about it, but I wanted to talk to Nelson and find out from the Finkelstein down in Miami because my son is a physician down in Hollywood. So I want, you know, I want to get involved. Anything this charity, I want to get involved, Nelson. So, Anything I can help you with. I know I'm going to get Curtis to help you, too. Curtis, you coming with me, big guy. Hey, Nelson, have you met Curtis? Nelson, you not, not, we have not met face-to-face. -face. No, uh, I got uh, one bone to pick with you, uh, Ronnie Bloomberg. Yeah, yes. Sitting out in the canyon beyond the monuments in the old Yankee Stadium where nobody was after 64 because uh, we were down there with basement Bertha. And the Jewish hammer. First designated hitter, but who had, who had a Kanish named after him? Not Ronnie Bloomberg, Roy White. I don't think you remember. The vendor would come around and he'd be selling Roy White Kanish. Kanishes. How in the world? I'm going to talk to him tomorrow. I'll talk to <laughs> Diva. I'll, I'll give him a call. Impale, you should impale yourself with a menorah that a guy from. <laughs> Los Angeles, who was yes. reading books, not Jewish, had a Kanish named after him, but you didn't. And that's why he's lighting candles for bar mitzvahs up in New York, and I'm not? No, I'm about that. But this is wonderful. You know, see, this is wonderful to be able to talk because, Curtis, you know, you and I basically almost the same age. Nelson, you know, he's, he's a kid now. You know, I mean, I watched him when he was young. You know, to be <laughs> successful. And, you know, Nelson, I met Nelson. I don't know if you've been to, have, Nelson and Curtis, have you been to his restaurant, the Hunt and Fish Club in uh, New York? Curtis was there. Curtis. It's the Bergen Hunt Fish and Shoot Human Beings Club. That's slightly different. Junior John Gotti Jr. and Gambino. <laughs> you were there. Hey, yeah. wait a second. One time. Thank you. Now. Nelson could come go to any games he wants to. I'm taking you to a Yankee game. And, you know, uh, Nelson, I'm going to take you to a Yankee game. We're going to go Please. up in the press box, and we're going to enjoy ourselves. And what about me? Where am I going? <laughs> you got credentials. You could go up to the press box. You know, you could talk to Kay and Sterling and all those guys, and, you know, and Coney and all those. You could talk to those guys. So I'm going to hunt going on in. You can show your pass. You were there, Natalie? No, I've never been. I've never been. Oh, we got to correct never been that. To Yankee Stadium? No, I I live at the Yankee. I live at Yankee Stadium. I know that. What did you say? <laughs> You've never been up at Hunt <laughs> Fish Club. Hunt Fish Club, yeah. Oh, no, no, no. Because of this Zoom and we're doing a lot of stuff like a family together. We are fa familia, my... familia. Okay, now, okay. Now, uh, uh, Curtis and Nelson. Okay, Figueroa, a uh, Mish Booker. You heard of Mish Booker, Nelson? Mish Booker, uh-huh. Have you met, you know what that is? I, I is know, but most, 
Yes, I know most. Of, I know most of it because I'm married. I'm married to a Jewish woman, and I, I'm going to Brandeis. I've heard a lot of it. Oh, you know, I, I, three, I actually the... have three yarmulkes. I have three yarmulkes that have Major League Baseball symbols. <laughs> oh no, do you really? And I, I, I swear, it's got to be the same kid that makes it for me. But I had a, one he made with a Brandeis symbol, one he made with a Philadelphia Philly symbol, and one with a Met symbol. He looks a little Jewish, right, Nelson? Does he look a little Jewish? <laughs> <laughs> I could pull it off. I, I have the Israeli eyebrows. That's what yeah. I used to say at Brandeis. <laughs> We could get Curtis. Curtis could take us down to uh, 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 MacArthur's uh, uh, Arthur's Avenue. Is that still pretty good? Uh, Arthur uh, Avenue, absolutely. Yeah, but it's all it's eyes. all uh, it's all Albanians pretending to be Italians in <laughs> But I will tell you this: uh, I hated the Mets. I still hate the Mets. Back Figueroa, but you guys, pitchers, you were Schmendricks. I despise you. If you went to the old Shea Stadium and you looked at the parking lot, it looked like a demolition derby, right? Like, <laughs> I don't know what cars were in worse shape. Jamaica Salvage, which by the right of the line, or Med fans, three-eyed cousin fornicators, driving there with no teeth. I mean, let's be honest. That was your typical Med fan. It sounds like people from South Carolina, no teeth, you know? Oh, <laughs> right. I mean, Met fans is like, oh man, so low budget. And that, <laughs> Rango, Rango, that would burn your insides out. Remember when the Yankees, hey, Curtis, remember Nelson. Okay, this is yes, before the little Nelson. Okay, remember when uh, a Yankee, uh, when we changed from the old stadium to the new Yankee stadium? Not mm -hmm. that we had to go to Shea Stadium for two years, 74 and 75. Remember that? And let me tell you, when it rained, it was like I found out it was over a swamp. And every time we're trying to yell at uh, Thurman or yell at uh, uh, Nettles, anybody, or Roy White or Elliot Maddox out in the outfield, you couldn't hear anything because you had those 747s going over that. <laughs> and it's it, it, and those lights are going bang, 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 bang. Like this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, gosh. It was so, you know what? Nelson. As as most yeah, Mets fans say, play an old uh, uh, Shea Stadium. It, it was, was a dump, John but it was Lynch. our dump. John Lindsay rehabbed the old house that Ruth built, exiled the the Yankees to Shea Stadium, and Bobby Mercer, who was the star, you know, the mini Mickey mm -hmm. Mantle from Oklahoma, never hit a home run. At Shea Stadium, no, he couldn't hit. Shea him. Stadium in two years. Yeah, it was in his mind he couldn't hit home runs. Right, but still, you couldn't hit home runs in Shea Stadium. And he had the power to do it. He just, he was just so totally, totally psyched out because he saw right field in uh, Yankee Stadium. And you know what? If you look at that, there's not too many left-hander hitters. Not a lot of them will hit the ball, will hit home runs to, to right down the line in right field. You always hit it to right center. You always hit it right. Now, Yankee, old Yankee Stadium, people don't realize center field was 461. And then mm -hmm. when you went out to left center, it was like 430. And you, you go out there now, it feels like it's 200 feet. Mm -hmm. And if you hit the ball up in the air at any of these stadiums, Nelson, okay. Mm -hmm. We're talking, okay. Let's, okay, I told you we're going to talk about the DH now. Curtis, yes. Nelson, we're going to all talk about the DH. I did a piece on my uh, 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 Facebook about three days ago about the DH. When I talked about the DH, half the people love it, half the people hate it. But it's been 48 years they have not made a decision to have it or not to have it. 
Why did it take 48 years? Now they talk about robotics as Colin strikes, number one. Mm -mm. Talking about putting somebody on second base in uh, 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 extra inning games. Extra innings. Yeah, and, um, and, and seven inning games. They, they don't play double headers anyway, do they? They, they, they will be. They, they will, they will be. be. They, are they, you know, okay, they will be. Yeah, that's and, one thing they're bringing back, the seven inning double headers. And you, you know, you got the, uh, 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 you know, everybody's playing. Uh, you, you, they don't understand how the infield is. The infield is like playing on like uh, uh, like astroturf. And uh, Nelson, you're not going to take have a bad bounce. I right. mean, you go out there. We we used to play out there. We used to go to Shea or play at Yankee Stadium. We're always like kicking rocks, you know, and they <laughs> drag it, you know, instead of. Mm -hmm. uh, 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 pulling it with their carts, they used to drag the uh, the fields and stuff. Yep, yep, and I remember. Ask them in the minor leagues. I guarantee you, did you start in Pulaski? Did you start in Pulaski when you're in minor leagues with the Mets? No, uh, I started in Kingsport, Tennessee was my first year. So I went from Kingsport. Pittsfield was the one up in Massachusetts was the neck yeah. level. So you went to I was Pittsfield. in Johnson City, Tennessee. Yep, I know Johnson City very well. Yep, then we have... Uh, so through the Mets system, it was Kingsport to Pittsfield. Then you got to play in St. Lucie. And from St. Lucie, you went to Binghamton. Binghamton, you went to Norfolk. And then Norfolk to the big leagues. So there's the, the six levels that you have to go through and have success at each level to make it to the big leagues. And some of those towns, again, the lower you're down, the, 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 the lower down the, uh, I would say, the, the town is. And it's, uh, it's an adjustment. It's always an adjustment. You were talking earlier about how, you know, first round draft picks. Yeah, I played with a lot of guys who had more talent. I played with a lot of guys who, you know, got more money to sign. But my my first year, prime example, a high school shortstop, they signed him to $800,000 signing bonus. He quit after one year. Oh, yeah. he, he wasn't in love with baseball. And when he had to move outside of his small town where he was the big star, he did not feel uh, it was enough to keep him away from being at home, you know, near, closer to his mom, dad, and eventually his girlfriend who became his wife. So he gave up. Uh, I remember the second half of his signing bonus because he really didn't want to be a baseball player. It was a dream that his father had for him. He was able to accomplish it and be a first round draft pick and his first round draft pick for the Mets. So he went kind of early. Um, and then he decided just wasn't into baseball that much. So it, there are guys like that as well that you will never hear of. There's, there's tons of guys who can throw hundred miles an hour down the minor leagues. You no. will never see them in a major league uniform because there's other things that they can't do. And the mental side of it, mental toughness is a huge part of it. And that's something that you can't gauge like a spin rate or, uh, or batting average or an ERA. That's something that an uh, old scout would be able to kind of hang out for a week, watch the team interact, be around the kid and listen to him talk and talk to him a little bit. And you can get a gauge on what makes this kid tick. They don't really do that much anymore. It's so analytical for myself. People always mm -hmm. ask me, how did I hit the ball? You know, I mean, I, I'm very simple. I see the ball, I swing, I hit it, just like you did in stickball. You know, mm -hmm. you're not going to computerize all this. And with the uh, with the uh, ratio, how high you hit the ball, or how hard you hit the ball. Mm -hmm. You hit a home run, you hit a home run. You know, that's right. how I look at it. But we're talking about minor leagues. People don't realize when you're in the lower minor leagues, you might be rooming with about seven, eight guys. And then mm -hmm. the next morning, you wake up with four because three of them got released. Oh, and yeah. Then you three more. You probably went through that, too. And oh, yeah. That, that, that's that's tough. Got released. 
oh, that guy was a good ball player. That guy could throw mm-hmm. hard. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, you know, people don't realize how, you know, I mean, people think it's easy. It's not. The life in the big leagues are a lot easier because, I mean, you could get your Rolls Royces. You could, you know, get your uh, uh, Gucci and Pucci stuff. You could buy your four <laughs> houses in every city you go to. You could get the yachts. But in the minor leagues, believe me, you eat at White Castles. You eat at McDonald's. Mm-hmm. You know, after a ball game, you know, 11 o'clock at night, in these small towns where there's 3,000 people in the whole town, what's open? You're barely running in there and getting the French fries. Am I right? You know. Yeah, yard. We used to talk about we used to talk about yard bird. We would have three or four guys go in on a bucket of chicken. You oh, know, instead yeah. of so you'd split a bucket of chicken before the game to have something to get you through the game. That you know the spread. So being in AAA, which is one step below the limelight. You're sitting there and you're having your your meal. Your meal is peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, uh-huh. uh, maybe some cold cuts if you're lucky. Maybe if they were really fancy, they had a foreman grill and you were able to grill a little bit of a chicken yeah. breast. Um, and then all of a sudden you turn on, you go to the big leagues the next day and you got a, a chef there at the stadium who's cooking up seven oh. different entrees. And so you, you really... You got to, I used to always say, you got to stay humble because if you have to go back down and you, the last thing you said to that guy in AAA was, see you in your sorry sandwiches later. Then when you're back down, you're going to have to go get your own food because they're not going to take care of you anymore. Yankee Stadium, you go to Legends. And I don't know if Mm -hmm. you've ever been to Legends. Yes, I know. I've heard. You got the lobsters, you got the fillets, you got the, Mm -hmm. you know, and then you go in a Yankee clubhouse. In the Yankee clubhouse, they got their own uh, manufacturer of uh, chefs and stuff. Their chefs are just like uh, 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 they, you know, they're on TV. Those chefs on TV. Yep, yep, yep. And, Iron you know, well, I'm, I'm getting in the afternoon. Well, what do you want for lunch? Well, I like to have uh, spaghetti meatballs. Well, back home, we call it spaghetti meatballs. Y'all call it with brisee. Uh, what kind of sauce and stuff? We get Monero. Bolognese, bolognese. We put ragu. Yeah, we put ragu sauce on it. You know, back down in Georgia. That's where we used to go. And you know, and I used to send, uh, I used to send the uh, uh, clubhouse guys, and the clubhouse guys used to go to a, a deli called the Roxy in the Bronx. I used to let them go get me my pastrami and my corned beef mm-hmm. and my half-sour pickles. And they used to go out and, and, and Thurman and I. And, and Garen was beginning. Yep. Well, speaking of your finale, Ron, I think we're going to start our own finale here. <laughs> <laughs> and I think we want to thank our guests, Curtis Sliwa, Nelson Figueroa, Nelson Braff, um, I hope you guys enjoy the show, but follow up on them. You can find the Guardian Angels at guardianangels.org. Um, Nelson, we didn't get, well, figure out Figgy. We didn't get a chance to talk about it, but follow him. He has his own podcast, Amazing But True. The New York and Post, yeah. Nelson Raff, check him out on High Lifeline. Uh, so thank you so much for joining and us. Nelson, thank you for everything you do for us. I appreciate it. Thank you guys for having me. Ellie, thank you, big guy. I love you. Anything you need from us, you let us know, big guy. We'll be Anything in contact. I'm going to a Yankee game with you. I want to go with you because then I'll get treated. You got well. me. We're going to, hey, don't worry. We won't have to pay for anything. We'll use <laughs> Natalie's, uh, we'll use Natalie's, uh, 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 we'll take Ron to the camp. <laughs> yes. Hey, hey, Curtis, wait a second. And Curtis, you, you and your family are my guests to go to Yankee Stadium. I just want to let you know that. And let's keep uh, it I tell, I tell you what, Bloomberg, I tell you what, since you got the juice, right, 
since you might as well be related to the Steinbrenners. Tell no, the Steinbrenners are not Jewish. Randy Levine and Lon oh, Trotsky I know, I know that. And Randy <laughs> Levine's from Brooklyn. But you tell that Shonda that he better have the rendition of Kate Smith's God Bless America play during the seventh inning stretch. <laughs> in the new mall known as the New Yankee Stadium built by A-Royd and Derek Jeter. I love that. I, I love gotta it. tap out after that one. <laughs> I love it. Okay, I love Thank it. You so love Thank you, Ronnie. All right, everybody. Be well. Be well, too. Love y'all. Curtis, Thank love you. you. Nelson, you got it, thank you. Love y'all, big guy. Thank you. Jordan, Take it care, was guys. great tonight. It was great. Natalie, it was wonderful, like everything. Hey, uh, thank you. Curtis, can, can you hear me? Uh oh, we lost Curtis. <laughs> I guess no, I mean, oh, no, there he is. Oh, we lost him. We lost Ron. <laughs> so, thank you so much again, Curtis. Curtis. <laughs> thank you so much, Curtis. Yeah, anytime, anytime. It flows through my veins and arteries, especially you get back to.